Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I hope uh, wherever you are, you're doing well. I hope you're hanging in there. I hope you're ready for the election to be over. You ready for this to be over? This shit show? This toxic disaster? You ready? Do you want more? Uh, Mike Roberts is my guest. His debut novel is called Cannibals in Love, available now from FSG Originals. I should add that uh, Mike is also a accomplished screenwriter, which I'm excited about. Uh, nice to have a, uh, an accomplished screenwriter on the program. He adapted uh, the memoir Goat by Brad Land, and uh, that film adaptation just released. It premiered at Sundance this year and uh, just had its its uh, premiere, its its actual premiere a little bit ago. So, uh, Mike Roberts in just a moment. I don't have a lot to say here at the top of the show. You know, I'm, I'm very consumed trying to finish up my novel right now. And, uh, it's just, I don't want to get into the tedium, the emotional tedium of what that's like. I heard someone say that ending a novel or I read somewhere that ending a novel, trying to kind of wrap things up and write it, uh, properly is like trying to land an airplane. That makes some sense. Got to tie it all together. So I'm in the midst of that. And as I'm in the midst of that, I'm doubting myself. 
I swing wildly. I get very excited about the book and then I'm just like, what is this? Why did I do this? Did I just waste years of my life? <laughs> uh, and then I sent the book to an editor. The editor still has the book. I haven't really heard in detail what, you know, what the editor thinks of the book. And the, because it's taking a little bit, I'm thinking to myself, oh God, it's a navel gazy. It's a nauseating, self-involved, navel gazy disaster. These are, these are the kinds of thoughts that I'm having. I can catastrophize very well. Just got to finish it. If I sit here long enough, eventually. Uh, what else? The election? I already, I I can't talk about it. Can I talk about it? It's everyone's just seems to be thinking about it. I feel like every conversation I have somehow touches upon it. It's a disaster. Much of the damage is already done. Donald Trump needs to lose in a massive landslide in order for us to, uh, you know, begin to address the wound that he's opened up in the national psyche. The permission structure he's created for complete imbeciles to run for the highest office in the land. I don't know. I don't, you know, as of right this moment, knock on wood, I don't think he's going to win, but who knows? You got to vote. It won't work unless everybody votes. I keep thinking of that, like, you know, like I keep thinking about the next book, trying to kind of wrap my head around what the next project might be. And I'm like, should I write something about politics? I seem to be consumed with it. I don't know if it's a healthy side of my personality though, that I pay attention to this stuff. I feel like there are writers and human beings generally who easily detach from all of this and are happy to not care. Whereas I follow it fervently with great interest. Like I, I believe that there are consequences. I think some other people, they either don't care or don't believe that there really are consequences and that, you know, one's actions on Twitter or whatever. Uh, you know, what, like the, the speaking up part of politics as a citizen, I think there are people who just feel like, oh, it doesn't matter or, oh, I'm just not interested in this. Or they've just assessed these people who are involved in politics and they've said that these are not my kind of people. And, uh, they maybe make the mentally healthier choice of just turning their back on it entirely. But I feel like if you do that, if nobody's paying attention, this is my paranoia. If nobody is paying attention, who is semi sane, then you just basically seed the field which largely seems to have happened. If Hillary Clinton does win, and if, you know, she somehow manages to take Congress, which would be awesome, so she can actually legislate, I hope one of the first things she does is make voting easier. You know, move uh, election day to a Saturday. Why has nobody ever done this? Make it easy for people to participate. In Australia, they have mandatory voting. You have to vote, or I think you pay some kind of penalty. They have an incredible uh, turnout. They have incredible citizen participation. They get a representative sample in an election. So anyway, 
think that's all I'll say about that. Let's get to Mike Roberts. His novel, his debut novel is called Cannibals in Love. It's available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux Originals, FSG Originals. Very pleased to have him. He's also the uh, screenwriter on the movie Goat. Out there now, somewhere. Track it down. Here he is, folks. This is Mike Roberts. Well, it takes a long time to be able to say, I'm a screenwriter out loud, or I'm a novelist out loud, and not feel like a fool, you know? Mm. Or not feel like a fake. There's always this level of having to prove yourself at the next step, and the next step, and the next step. But uh, some of that anxiety just washes away. It has to do with age. It has to do with all the scripts that I have written. It's, you know... It's, there's all these things that validate it. So, and, and how do you tolerate the, cause there's a lot of bullshit to be dealt so with. much. Yeah. How do you tolerate it? Do you ever find yourself to, being like, what am I doing? Or do you have a better attitude about it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the novel sort of came out of this point of like almost a breaking point with screenwriting because it's so hard to get a movie made. It's like almost impossible. And, um, but it's funny because like just this summer I had some changes and, um, it put a lot of wind back in my sails and I'm excited about that's screenwriting. It's all, it all it takes. It takes just a little break you and know? the opportunities that are coming to me now. And the, the, these general meetings are getting more interesting. You know, um, people pitch things to me and say, are you interested in this? Or we option this article. Do you want to read it and tell us, you know, if you have a take or do you want to option this book? It's like, that small step up to now where I can be considered to adapt things. And I have a writing partner, Andrew Neal, who's a director and we work together and we develop a lot of material for him to direct. But recently we've started taking writing jobs for other directors and that's great because there's an existing piece of material. It's a puzzle. We're pretty good at solving puzzles. This is like, we, we communicate in this language and uh, best case scenario, we can sort of, turn it around really quick. And I like the speed of that and then, you get paid. and you get paid and then, but the, the hard part is then that's the purest version. You get to that first draft or so, and people are happy with it. And then you enter the slog of, will this get turned into a movie or not? And there's a lot of work and you're, you know, factoring in a lot of notes that have nothing to do with that sort of like purest idea of the movie. You have to make a lot of compromises and I'm okay with that. I mean, that's the business. That's yeah. a, you can't, I mean, you have to go in with your eyes open about that kind of stuff. I mean, unless you're at a certain, like a really rare level, mm -hmm. that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. It makes you, if you're lucky enough to have something get made and you like it or you like the process, you become a lot less precious about, you know, giving up certain things that you think are important. You know, you fight your battles. It's funny because if you're the screenwriter, you're one of the few people that has the whole movie in their head going into production, you know, the, there's people playing catch up, but it seems so simple. Like, why don't we just take out this scene? And it's like, in your mind, it's like either tipping over all these dominoes or it removes that domino that would keep them tipping over. And then to try to communicate that you feel like this, like sort of like whiny person, yeah. you know, it's like the, the, but you understand how the puzzle was put together. Yeah. That's, that's all you're trying to communicate. Well, it feels like, tell me if you, uh, how you feel about the amount of uh, movies and television being made today, because as hard as it is to get stuff made, it feels like there's more being made than ever before in a lot of ways. And it, sometimes I feel like 
I go back and forth. Like in, on uh, one side of my brain, I'm like, that's great. You know, this is awesome that people are getting opportunities and that the technology has lowered the uh, barrier to entry, that people can, you know, go buy a relatively cheap camera and make a movie mm-hmm. on their Mac or a television show. Uh, on the other hand, it's like, how, how, how are you ever going to get anybody to watch anything? It's like, you've got to really cut through a lot of noise. I, I mean, I agree completely. It's sort of overwhelming. I mean, that's why I sort of, there's a couple gatekeepers, right? There's, um, well, I, I mean, whatever, there's a lot of good TV being made everywhere, but it's like, if HBO makes a show, people pay attention. If X, FX makes a show, people pay attention. But if, you know, one of these tech companies puts out a show, it's like, do I have to, what, what is the barrier to even watch your show kind of thing? They're not like, they, I mean, they do some advertising, but I've noticed on Netflix that like a lot of these shows are just kind of going up mm-hmm. and there's not much of a rollout. There's not much of a publicity campaign mounted, or if there is, it's not, you know, it's not on par with like what's just happened with Westworld right? where you're like, okay, everybody knows about this. Like somehow right. I know about it because they've managed to get media coverage and they it's hbo right but you know a lot of these shows on netflix or uh, amazon or hulu they just kind of go up and i guess they're counting on their user base to find them and to tell them you know what it's kind of like i never thought of this it's kind of like putting a book out in the world (laughs) and it's sort of like how do you make people care about a book yeah and it's like if they either put effort into publicizing your book or not or the things that are intangible that you can't even say what's happening you know it's a little like that. I mean, it's great. Like nobody would ever say whatever. Nobody would give it back. You know, there's always that chance that your show is going to break through the model and sort of hit. That's what everybody has. That's what you hang your hopes on. Yeah. And it's a, I mean, it allows people to work. It gives people a body of work. It, it you know, it could, I mean, when I think about film and when I, when I talked about like the modest goal of like trying to sort of join the middle class. It's like you get that job and you try to string the next job off the end of that job. And then you try to do it again. You try to do it again. And it's just like, that's, that's not a bad way if you can keep that working. So there's always a chance that, um, each next job will be the one that is just sort of like so satisfying and validates all the shit, all the shit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, that's, you have to, you have to have that hope or otherwise you can't do anything in the arts or maybe anything professionally period. You have to believe that it can go well. Yeah. There's sort of, uh, (laughs) that's why there's, I mean, it's a, it's a type, right? It's the person who, says who, who sort of looks at the odds and then says, well, they're not talking about me or I'm not the, it's like this millennial thing, right? Of like, it's it's not just millennials. <laughs> I think it's like, you know, everybody, like, it's like, I think almost everybody who gets into it is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's really hard, but that I'll be the one. Yeah. People, you have to believe that. Otherwise, how do you do everything that it takes to make a movie or write a screenplay or write a novel? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's luck, right? You have to, you have to have some facility with it. You have to have some talent, but it's more just like, I, I pity the people who count drafts or want to tell you how many drafts they wrote or whatever. It's like, you're, that has nothing to do with any of it. You just have to write it over and over and over again until they sort of take it out of your hands and say, you know, we're in production now or yeah, it's time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to get to that point, I mean. So that part of it, there's no romance in that part of it. But then like a movie, if you get to make a movie, like we just had this movie goat, um, 
just came out based and, on the memoir by Brad Land. Yeah, it's this fraternity hazing book, and it's pretty raw. It's like um, treats fraternities in this very realistic way. It's not oh those knuckleheads they throw the best parties on campus. It's like Lord of the Flies, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like you you know shot it in 2015, and I was it, we shot in Cincinnati, and I went out there for a week and got to hang out and meet everybody. And then it's like, you see all these people again. And I was in New York when it premiered and it's like this little tribe of people who you've gathered this army who's come together. And it's like, that's so cool. satisfying to see them. And we all made a movie, you know, yeah. it's like, I see that's a part of it that I, that I cherish, uh, is the, the idea of collaborative art making, which mm -hmm. a lot of, I think writers of books sort of, um, you know, prefer to stay away from. Mm -hmm. And I think I have that side of me as well, but there's something awesome about, uh, working with other creative people and coming together to kind of realize a vision and, uh, you know, to actually get all the way through mm -hmm. all the hoops. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's the other side of it, right? At the end of the day, even with collaboration, you have to go in a room by yourself and write it. And there's, you know, you either have the temperament that lets you sit there all day long and do it or, it makes you feel itchy to be in a room by yourself. And with the novel, um, was it something that, uh, you were writing as a way of, uh, allowing yourself to have total creative control? Because I know as a screenwriter, you have to seed a lot of that. I mean, you know, there's a director, there are producers, uh, the people who are financing it, everyone's got to have their say and you know, you've got to adjust, you've got to revise, you've got to make changes and compromises with a novel. It's far less. So. Was that part of the motivation in writing it? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, the thing that nobody says when you give them a novel is this is so great, but how much is it going to cost and who are we going to cast in it? And what if we shot it in winter and all those things that you're just like, yeah, let's change all these things. Make, it's the, doctor, a novel. make the doctor a lawyer. And yeah. <laughs> or it's like when we went into production on goat, I remember they were like, we have to get rid of these night driving scenes. You have to take them all out because that's a nightmare to try to shoot night driving. I'm just like, okay, Andrew and I just started taking them out and we're like, and those, those sort of like limitations create possibilities, you know, but yeah, as far as like, it was, I, it was very frustrating to feel like you've done all this work on a script and the script and you're not, you're not any closer to getting a movie made, even though you're in, you have an actor attached, you have all these, all these things. Somebody's like put up the money. It's just like, those kind of things are just completely out of your control. So you just have to sort of, get a little Zen with it, I guess. So how did goat get made? Um, well, the long, you want the longer version. The longer version is this director named David Gordon green adapted his own version in 2004 off the galley of the book. Uh, Emil Hirsch was going to pay the kid, I think. And they got all the way pretty close. And then as these things do, it fell apart. So then the company killer films had it for, they still had the option and they still had the rights to, David Gordon Green's script. And there was another director that tried to go through and then the financial collapse happened in 2008. And then we had a movie with killer films in 2015, early 2015, Andrew thing, Andrew and I wrote together and he was going to direct it. And our, the actor who was attached, who got us the whole budget left to go do a big, big movie. And who was the actor? Should I say? I don't know. Yes, please. <laughs> well, I, okay. Well, I'll say who cares? No, whatever. Um, I only say this because I, I didn't, I was like, yeah, of course you have to go do that. It, it was this guy, Alexander Skarsgård, who, um, 
he's on that show True Blood or okay, whatever. Yeah. And he, you know, it's a modest budget, but it was like a $2 million budget or something. And he got it just by him saying, I'll be in the movie. And then he got offered Tarzan and it's like, huh. it's a no brainer for him because like, that's a big, probably that could have turned into a huge franchise of movies, you know? So I only say his name just to like illustrate the whole story, not because, and it's just the reality of the business. Yeah. It's and there no, was, it's like no hard feelings. It's an understandable situation. Absolutely. I mean, artistically, maybe it would be more, I mean, he would have to answer this better than us, but it seems like maybe it would be more artistically interesting to do like a, a dark movie about a frat or something than it would be to swing around the jungle. But who knows? Maybe. Well, this was a different movie. Yeah. But oh. uh, this was like a financial, this was about the financial collapse and all this stuff. It's still the thing about these things. They don't have shelf lives. It's like that thing still out there. Right. And we still have the production company. We have all these things. It's like you could slide in a different actor, you know, who knows? Like I, that's the, that's the satisfying thing on some levels. Like these things don't ever really go away. And that's, kind of the point I'm illustrating with the story of goat. It's like David Gordon green wrote a script 12 years ago, which is crazy. And he has a writing credit with me and Andrew because we inherited his script and we inherited the book. And then we wrote our own version really quickly. And then the stars just started to align. It was just like, um, I don't know. It seems like, uh, it's timing. It's, you yeah. know, you can't, you can't game this stuff. Mm -mm. It seemed timely at the, it's, it was probably a much more timely movie in 2015 than it was in 2004, just Why? because, I mean, all those, I, I mean, the fraternities, uh, they used to be this very cloistered thing and they still are, but everybody's got a cell phone now. Everybody's on the internet. Right. It's like nothing is secret. Right. And so they're very paranoid in a way, maybe with good reason that were you in a frat? No, I wasn't. You weren't? No. Yeah. Everyone wants me to, I don't know if they want me to be in a frat or what, but it's like, that's kind of the fun of screenwriting too, is like, um, unlike the novel, which is very autobiographical in so many ways, it's like screenwriting just lets you like try on the different clothes of these characters and just like make it work, you know? Yeah. So it's, and it's like, who doesn't know? I mean, young male aggression it's like it's all kind of universal and i said like lord of the flies and it's just like well that's the funny thing because uh i mean i was in a frat for like a semester then we got kicked off mm. <laughs> um but I, I was in an out-of-state school i didn't know anybody and like we you know you kind of alluded to animal house without saying it but i think for a lot of kids pop culture like growing up like that's that was my idea of it it was like mm -hmm. i just want to go have parties and meet girls and have fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you get there and it's like, wait a minute, I got to clean this place and you're mm -hmm. going to throw food at me. And this, I have to be friends with that guy. Yeah, I have to be yeah. friends with that asshole. Like act like he's my brother yeah. or whatever. And then, you know, so you lose interest quickly, but, uh, in its defense, you know, I met some of the best friends of my life just in that semester. Sure. You know, never lived in the house or anything, but yeah, I mean the, the movie was never, it was, it was never intended to be some sort of expose, you know, but it's like, it's it's dealing with something in the culture that gets talked about a lot less than than we imagine it does you know well and it's like yeah it's like you say you know you go in maybe sort of naively thinking animal house and then you get there and you find out that it's lord of the flies well yeah one of the <laughs> blurbs which was so great is like um animal house meets full metal jacket you know <laughs> And it's just like, yes, yes. Glad somebody wrote that yes, about the does. movie. That's yeah. I mean, that paints the picture. Well, and it, it's a weird thing. Male aggression. It's a mm -hmm. weird thing. Like hormonal boys, you know, uh, like out on their own mm -hmm. drunk, 
mm-hmm. like competitively drinking, angry, um, insecure, like all the things that people are, but it's a pretty combustible combination. Well, and there's this subtext. I know you haven't seen the movie, but it's like, there's this class issue too, where it's not just this institutionalized, like male aggression of a fraternity, you know, remove the fraternity and they would all be fine. It's like, if you're poor, you join a gang. If you're rich, you join a fraternity. And it's like, there's all these other strata in between. It's like, there's just this sort of, uh, there's, we create these outlets for it, but it's all, it's, it's very messy, you know? And if you're smart, you don't join any of them. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, enough people wanted to come out and say like, I had a good experience or they'll say like, yeah, I'd had some really rough shit happen, you know? So it's like, yeah, I mean, it depends where you go. I feel like, uh, in Boulder, it was pretty mellow compared to sure. Yeah. I think some of these Southern schools, it gets kind of brutal, you know? Well, it's funny too, because, um, just to sort of like keep breaking the thing apart, it's like, you know, I read the memoir. I understood there was a guy named Brad land. I understood he's a real person, but then they cast this kid Ben Schnetzer to play him. And I've written, you know, then it becomes this guy. And I'm just like, at a certain point, I totally forgot that there was a real person. And I got to meet him in New York at the New York premiere. And How I was, was that? just like, it was great. I think he, um, uh, I mean, can you imagine? It's like, this is a thing where in the abstract, it's like so great because his books out there and people are talking about it and the movie's getting good reviews and they put a new cover with bench nets and Nick Jonas on it. And it's like, you know, hopefully he's getting to sell some books out of this. And I talked to him about that a little bit, but, um, also this is not a thing you enter back into lightly. This like traumatic thing. That's like basically PTSD, you know? Yeah. So I, I didn't get to the level of knowing that. I think he's really, I think it sort of draws the circle closed for him that this book that he, he had this thing happen. I can't speak for him. He wrote the book and now the movie is done. So it's not this question of year after year, somebody paying this small option to keep that thing going, you know? Yeah. So well, um, where, where does, uh, where can people see the movie? Well, basically anywhere you can watch a movie digitally on demand. Okay. iTunes, Amazon, Netflix. Net- no, it's not on Netflix yet. But, um, but yeah, there was a short theatrical run last week and that was cool because you want people to see it in the theater, but that's getting, I mean, I know again, it's like, (laughs) it's like these event movies. There's gotta be like 3d. It's kind of a glorified promotional element to put it in a theater. I don't know. I mean, it's like, like, think about, uh, I think about like this year, the, I mean, I'm, I'm not the the master of all this stuff, but, um, hell or high water Hmm. seems like the one of the indie movies at least, or like, you know, what what do you call them? Art films that got a theatrical release and a critical reception that everybody would sort of dream of. And I want to see it in the theater. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to get to the theater. Yeah. Me neither. I'm just like, fuck, you know, and I know, and this happens to me a lot, you know, like there'll be the handful of movies that I really want to see. And it seems like it's gotten harder. Maybe it's just because I have kids and life is sort of uh, encroached on my old, theater going, you know, going time. But now you have, you know, you have 500 channels and, and, you know, on demand and flat screen televisions. And I think people wind up staying home a lot more. Yeah. Which is a bummer, which is a bummer because, uh, like I told you that we saw it, they had the premiere in New York and my parents came down from Buffalo and it's like, so great to like have them watch it in a room full of people who sort of pace you through the like horrible parts. Yeah. 
and then they get to meet the actors afterwards and have a com- you know whatever it's like they get to see the whole thing but just for anybody to watch it in a room with people especially with strangers it and changed, just sort of like it changes it yeah i'm gonna put stadium seating in this garage that's a good to, idea have people over <laughs> um was it easier to write a book than it was to write a screenplay or what's which which, which one is more challenging for you um i don't know if it was easier i that's a good question uh it was more it's more gratifying and satisfying and to write the book because it's very much my expression right the movie gets filtered through so many things and you know you get credit for things you didn't do and you get sort of like blame for things blame for things you didn't do you know and it's just sort of like you just put it into you just mix it all up whatever the book is very much like line by line it's the book that i try to write and i'm like really happy with it on that level because um there was a certain kind of book it sounds so cliche whatever trite but there was a certain kind of book and i was like why did nobody write this kind of post 911 book and i was just like a couple factors but anyway I just, I knew I could do it. And so to actually have the book and for it to feel like that book that I wanted to write, that's bigger than a movie for me. So, um, you'll keep doing books too. For sure. I mean, this is the thing too. It's like, was this always part of the plan or is this something that came to you as you were like, kind of like down river as a screenwriter? It's, I mean, if, if I would have sort of caught fire as a screenwriter, who knows, you know, but Still could happen. Still could happen. Yeah. But the fact that it was so hard, like the fact that I would write a dozen scripts, all good on some level and not be able to get a movie made that sort of pushed me into it. Right. But as far as like being this, the the novel is not a lark. This is very much like two trains on a track, right? I'm going to, I'm absolutely going to keep writing novels, but I think about like, um, having peers, right. I don't know a lot of novelists. I'm getting to meet them now. Like I heard you on, you should, you should hang out in this garage. You yeah. Should... <laughs> I'll be right by that glass wall. Just Hi, peering this is in. Mike. He yeah. just wants to make friends, <laughs> but it's like on some level, I feel competitive with people who are around my same cohort age wise and whatever. And so the, how fa- old are you? 35. Okay. So we're not that far, right? What yeah, are you? 41. 40? Yeah, exactly. So, I feel competitive in the sense of like, even though I have the slate of screenwriting stuff that I'm lucky to have that I have to like keep that wheel turning over. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not intending to be that guy who writes one book every 10 years. Like I want to keep up with the person who's trying to get a book out every whatever. two, three years. Yeah. yeah. If that's, you know, you can't predict the future, whatever. I don't know if that's fully possible, but that's Do my you have goal. Kids? I have no kids, okay. right? Well, yeah. okay. <laughs> you could probably do it. <laughs> yeah. Like what kind of working, like what kind of uh, work ethic do you have? You probably have to keep yourself pretty busy to get all this stuff done. Like, are you somebody who's working seven days a week? Yeah. On some level. Yeah. Um, the great thing is I've already said it, but I have a, I have a writing partner with film, right? So mm-hmm. Andrew, um, he's a director and we generate a lot of material for him to direct. But like I said, we've been lucky to get some jobs. And the thing about a writing partner which I didn't realize. And we've been working together for like eight or nine years now is I thought, Oh, a writing partner. They have like your same sensibility. They have your same sense of humor. They get all, you know, you're basically the same person and you just spit it out. But that would be a terrible writing partner. Cause what are you doing there? So it's like, 
Andrew and I start like far apart and he says like, what do you think about evangelical Christians or something? And I say, Oh, I don't think about them at all. What are you talking about? (laughs) And then he says, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, and all of a sudden we're in the middle there and we found something that's so much better than either of us could have came up with on our own. Why is it that screenwriting? I mean, obviously, I mean, there are people who write a novel in tandem every once in a while, Mm. you'll see like a dual authorship or something, but I feel like with screenwriting, it works so much more nicely with mm-hmm. a, with another person you can volley with mm-hmm. like in terms of, cause you have to generate so much, uh, content. You have to keep the ideas churning mm-hmm. and to just do that in your own head, man, you, you better be reading a lot and watching a ton of movies and just inputting because I find that like so much happens so much more quickly in a, in a verbal dialogue, just mm-hmm. a conversation like that. Yeah. And if you could, but you have to be with somebody who can spark that sort of stuff with you and vice versa. And that's not easy to find. No. And it's like long days of just putting in the hours and not sure how much you got done and, uh, just bitter fights about the dumbest shit, you know? (laughs) And it's just like the good thing about when we're, you know, we can be a little more like, you know, when we're writing something for somebody else, it's like, we can get it to a certain point and then whoever the director or the producer, whoever's going to give us notes has to have input. But if we're writing something for Andrew direct, Oh, we can go back and forth forever. And, but at the end of the day, if he doesn't understand, if he can't direct the thing that I'm trying to write, then there's no point. We have to get it to a point where he understands what it is and how he would direct it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So you let go of a little bit of ego that way. Um, but, but you can also move more quickly in terms of uh, oh, yeah. finishing a script because you can take a pass on 10 or 15 pages and send it over to him and then he can... Yeah, we don't work that way, though. That, oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's uh, maybe there's people who make that work. I... You do it in the room at the same time? No. we So we have a conversation. I sketch out an outline. We have a conversation about the outline. I redraw it. We have a conversation about that. I write a draft over and over and over. So it's really my hands on the keyboard, but all of his input and his words and like lines of dialogue and like changes, you know, they're coming from him too, but I, but you're doing the drafting. Yeah. And maybe that's a weird control thing, but it's also like, it simplifies something about it. You know, the fact that I can organize it in a way and then we can talk about that. And probably to his credit, he probably gives up certain things that like maybe annoy him on the page or he's like, that's not it that's fine. You know, I understand what it is or whatever. But you're facing the blank page, yeah, which is a pain in the ass, but you also have control. Like you have certain controls. There are certain, there's a certain level of control inherent in that. Yeah. Cause like I have like, uh, my writing partner and I, um, you know, we, we're no longer working together just because she's doing book stuff. Mm. I've been writing this novel, but, um, you know, we, would have conversations and then I would go and do the the drafting mm-hmm. and then send pages, but you get to sort of control structure. You get to control. Um, I don't know. I, I guess like temperamentally. Yeah. I'm, I'm well suited to that part of it. Yeah. Cause if you felt like, Oh, this is a burden, like she's not doing any work and I'm doing all the work, then you'd, then you'd be the wrong person. Like, of course, probably for you too, there's this fantasy of a, a different kind of writing partner where I would just like show up. We'd, drink some coffee. We talk, I give my notes and (laughs) that person like turning it over, but that's not what it is either. You know, it's a lot of work on both sides. It is, it is. And it's just, uh, you know, like as long as the puzzle pieces fit together, there's a million different ways to do it. Yeah. Um, 
Well, so I have a question for you because you mentioned your own book. It's like, um, I've listened to the podcast a, a bunch, as I told you, did you think 10 years ago or whatever that it would take this long for you to get the second book? No. I mean, what were you thinking when that book, the first book came out? Were you thinking like, well, I had another book that I was writing that I wound up shelving that I thought was going to be the next book. Uh -huh. And then the internet was happening. I mean, this was 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. And I got wrapped up in the nervous breakdown and then it started to metastasize. It's yeah. Intentional reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's a, you know, but I mean like it suddenly you're doing a, a publishing imprint and a live event series and you're doing a podcast and you're doing, you have to say yes to all those things. I did yeah. though. But I, and I'm like eagerly yeah. like I, cause I'm a sucker for like, I love to experiment and stuff. I was trying to build it into a business. I, you know, I don't know. I was just kind of finding myself getting involved in lots of different things. And another way of putting that might be spreading myself too thin. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some people, you know, who are just laser focused and it's like, all I'm going to do is write books. Mm -hmm. And had I taken all of the energy that I spend and all the work hours that I spent on all these different things, including screenwriting. Mm -hmm. So it's like, for me, I need to, I mean, this is my current assessment of myself. I need to sort of like pare down and be like, this is what I want to do. And it's so hard. So you reprioritized fiction writing. I mean, or you just like let go of some of the anxiety about fitting it in or something. It's, yeah. And then working in service of other writers, like excited me. I liked editing. I did. I that. guess the other thing is you can't know if you would have told like 10 years ago, Brad, like don't freak out, but it will take you 10 years to finish the next book. You, you can't know that or no. you would stop. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, it's just, uh, it's just having a lot of different interests and then having the opportunity to pursue them. And then suddenly you look up, it's yeah. kind of one of those feelings. Um, I don't know, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever you don't, I mean, it's like, who knows, but you're, it's good to be like right on the doorstep of feeling like you finished something. And let's just hope it's not a flaming <laughs> piece of shit. <laughs> Even if it is. <laughs> but as far as like, uh, what we were talking about, uh, about writing out, I'm a, I'm, committed outline writer. Like I write big for screenwriting and, for and for everything. everything. Okay. And I write, I, my feeling is a good outline is better than a rough draft or a first draft. Like if you, if it's like, I can throw everything at it and I don't have to make sure it all makes sense. Kind so of what thing. does it look like for you? You, do you have like a dry erase board? Do you sit there and type one out or no, it's all, it's a, it's this sort of massive word document okay. that only really I can, well, I, I've, I've had to sort of like turn it into a structure that Andrew can follow too. Cause it's a, it's a shared document. Uh, That's how it started. But for myself, when I'm writing a novel, it's sort of like, it's, it's the same process, except I'm the one coming at it with fresh eyes too. So it's a, I have to almost put it down. That's the good thing about screenwriting is it's like a lot of work for a short period of time. It's hurry up and wait. And then you turn the draft over and then you don't hear from these people for like six weeks. And then it's like, by that time I'm like dying to get back into the book, you know? Yeah. So, um, well, do you, do you apply? Cause I feel like, you know, you talk about, um, screenwriting in, in the context of like putting a puzzle together and structure is such, uh, is so much more critical. Not that it's not critical when you're writing a novel, but there's a rigidity to it. It's a mm -hmm. fixed form mm -hmm. and it teaches you something about storytelling mm -hmm. when you write a screenplay and you have to hit those beats. Um, there's an efficiency to it. And with writing, it's, you know, writing a novel, it's fun because you get to uh, play a little bit more. It's a little bit looser, but I think that sometimes novels can suffer for not having a sense of story. Yeah. So when you talk about, um, 
you know, outlining to do your novel? Like, do you feel like you're applying some of the, uh, storytelling, uh, like structural lessons of screenwriting to your book? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I never went to an MFA program. What I did was write two dozen screenplays, you know, I'm sort of self-taught on some level on that, but it's like, like we reading like a Sid field and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have a lot of patience for that kind of thing. Uh, I just read as many screenplays as I could to just sort of like absorb the form. And then once you get over your intimidation of, I don't understand the form. And once you get final draft or whatever screenwriting software, Which is easy, so easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, somebody asked me this the other day, like, what would the, how would the book be different if you did have like an MFA background? It's like, I have no idea how to answer that. What I know is like screenwriting has given me this facility for things like dialogue, which I think are very important to me or like knowing how to get in and out of scenes and sort of like, how to, okay. So let's talk about that. Like, that's just an intuitive thing. Like, a, I think so. Like a rhythmic, like, cause like, it's like, how do you, you just sort of sense it. Yeah. And that's like, not, uh, not helpful maybe to people, but it's like, <laughs> I think really like so much of writing is intuitive on some level. It's like you either have story instincts and you trust them and they serve you or I don't know what you do. Well, and I also feel like, you know, you watch enough movies yeah. or television shows. There's certain rhythms to scenes that you, I think innately pick up on, you know, hopefully if yeah. you have a facility for it. And then, you know, it's like a music, you have to know when the, and it's like a shape, you know? And, uh, I, I don't know. The other thing is conflict. I really like conflict. I like people like arguing. I like uncomfortable things. I like family stuff. I like just sort of like getting, making it messy, you know, and you can, I mean, I find that especially in a lot of indie movies, they sort of like pull back from those moments where it could get weird and interesting. And my experience and the work and Andrew, Andrew and I've done together, it's just like, no, that's when, that's the whole reason to build up to that point where it's going to get weird. You well, know? Well, I always say this in literature is that, uh, like, cause when you're talking about conflict, uh, when I was teaching uh, creative writing, I would always say, have your characters argue. Mm -hmm. There's not yeah. enough argument in literature. It's so fun too. <laughs> it's so fun. And it's like, it's just such an, it's a, a thing that people do all, every single day. Mm -hmm. We all know what an argument is. And yet sometimes I feel like people shy away from it or something or. Yeah. I don't understand that because what's better than somebody really wounding somebody verbally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's it gets, like the greatest thing gets you interested, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it tells you so much about both people, you know, in that conversation. So, um, those, those kind of things. I don't know. It's like, um, I don't know. It's that's, those are things that I've gotten from screenwriting and, uh, I don't know. It's, I don't know that. I don't know what, what else. This is the only point of view I have is my point basically. And I, they don't feel that different. It feels like the same group of muscles that I use differently. There's all these digressions and things that I can do in a book, like a novel that are so satisfying. And I don't have to just sort of like pull the ripcord on a scene because it's efficient. I can sort of like play it out and let it get There's not a page. There's not a page count. Nope. You so. know? So what about writing? I mean, I'm sure you're writing books with an idea of maybe eventually adapting your own work. Cause like, it's a valuable thing. I hear this all the time in the context of, you know, especially contemporary film and television. Um, you know, the content, if you have that content, you can really generate your own material. 
That's I'm, the, I'm not against it, up. but I also f- I knew that nobody was going to care about adapting Cannibals in Love into a movie. Okay. They they took it out and they sort of like let people sniff around it. But I was just like, I wrote it this way because it's much better as a book than a movie. But you you, know? you weren't thinking like, and I'm going to write the screenplay, and Andrew and I are going to go find funding. And no, 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 I didn't. I mean, I didn't care. I I was sort of like. I'd much rather adapt somebody else's book, honestly. I mean, I'd never say never. I mean, I, I can imagine books I want to write that would make better movies, but um, I also understand what a movie is more. I don't even know if I could quantify it, except that um, it sort of has the three arcs, the three act structure. It has the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it sounds so dull when you say it like that, but it's like you sort of see the shape a little more. I wanted this book to cover a period of seven years and I wanted it to do uh, the, you know, basically the George Bush, George W. Bush years. And I wanted it to do it in a way where the characters, characters come and go and the book moves and changes location, geography changes, like the circumstance changes and it sort of drops you in and you, you hit the ground running again. And it's like, you would have to give up some of that. You know what? Now that I'm thinking of it, they did a pretty good adaptation of Jesus' Son, which seemed like a book that would be hard to adapt. Yeah. I mean, I the, liked it as a movie. I thought the same thing about Wild, uh, the Cheryl Strayed yeah. memoir. I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting this to be a good movie. It was a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, so it can be done. You know, just you have to find the right screenwriter and get the right take and, you know, grind it out. Yeah. But I, I mean, now you're posing this question in my mind, like, what if somebody wanted it and wanted to do their own adaptation? That that would be very. The idea is very strange because I feel, I, I don't know. I'd have to like, I'd have to understand what that person was bringing to it, sort of what their idea was before so, you approved it. It well, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> A veto. Yeah. No, I don't know. I honestly, it's it's. I was not. It did not bother me in the slightest when the movie world was like, you've got plenty of movie stuff going on. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, that's basically my point of view. You want to, you want to work on a movie. Let's work on a movie. This is a book. And like, how did you get it sold? Like you wrote the book over a period of years and then, well, the story about that is like my girlfriend and I, we were living in Portland and sort of getting tired of Portland. And then she got into grad school at the university of Texas and we moved down to Austin. It was great. I had all these friends. They're all there to go to grad school. Then, Summer ends and they go to school and they all just disappear. Right. Wow. So then I'm just like, fuck, I don't know. I don't have any friends now. And all, when I do see them, all they want to talk about is like architecture or whatever they're working <laughs> on. I was like, this sucks. And it's so hot. So I was just, and we had a movie fall apart that summer too. And I'm just like, I was like, screw it. I'm going to write this book that I've been sort of slowly outlining. And I, so I wrote it in a burst and what is a burst three months, maybe. Okay. And you bastard. Uh, <laughs> well, it was like a, it was like a hundred page less, for whatever. Yeah. It was a first draft. Right. Um, and you had an outline, like a detailed outline. Yeah, I did. Uh, then we got a movie name uh, called King Kelly made and that sort of pulled me away and it sort of breathed life back into movies. And then on the other side of that, I came back to it and did a revision, wrote another chapter. Anyway, I totally like hit a wall because I had this like, it's an 18 chapter book now. And this is like, let's say a 12 or 13 chapter version. And, um, nobody cares. Like, even though I had film, a film agent at the time, a different film agent, 
I said, can you please walk this down the hall and give it to a literary agent? And she did. And that guy, like, I, I learned a lot because he was like, the conversation we had about my book, it what, was what not. What agency was this at? Like, uh, this was at Gersh Agency. Okay. And um, the guy was like, um, basically my take on it is he wanted something in genre that he could not do any work on and like sell. And I don't blame him, whatever. Like he's not, he's probably a guy in his fifties or sixties. He wasn't interested in developing my career. He wanted, who knows what his concerns are, getting the last kid through college, buying a boat, whatever. Yeah. But it's like the sort of bluntness with which the conversation happened. It taught me so much. Cause then I thought, Oh, like I get it. I'm a 30 year old man or however old I was. I need to find like a 30 year old agent who is like, needs to place a book as badly as I do. So the book sort of languished while I did film stuff. And then I'm, I, uh, was introduced through a mutual friend to my agent, my, my, my literary agent in New York, Sumia at writer's house. And, um, yeah, she sent it out to 23 editors and we got 22 no's and one yes. And that's all you need. That's all you need in life. Yeah. That's it. I, and I mean, and then you landed at FST originals. Yeah. Which is a a dream. Great. That's the, that's the yes you want. (laughs) I mean, yes. I mean, that's like incredible. I mean, we talked, I I mentioned Dennis Johnson, but like that's where Dennis Johnson publishes with FSG. It's like, that's, that means something to me. So whatever it was, I, I'm not complaining at all. I'm like, couldn't been happier. That's great. So, and I've had a good experience over there. And it's how long did it take? Was it, was it relatively quick turnaround or was it like months you were kind of waiting? Uh, no, we sent it, she sent it out and, um, she's like, yeah, you know, just hold tight, whatever. Like four weeks went by and we were getting like almost no response, whatever. Then the no's start coming in. And then, um, this is funny. She, was like, well, I'm getting married this weekend. She's married a dude named Roberts. So now she has my last name too. And now she's <laughs> sending out the book as Sumia Roberts. She was Sumia Ben Murad. And so that's funny. Cause now she has to answer all these questions about like, am I her brother? Am I her husband? Whatever. So she's like, it's been really slow. Uh, I'll be gone for the next seven days. Um, I'll check in when I get back. And she called me two days later and she's like from her, like wherever she got married. And she's like, um, you know, this editor at FSG wants to get on the phone with you. And she was excited. And so then it's like, where were you when you got this call? Uh, it was in my apartment in LA, a different apartment. And, but it's, there's no like lightning bolt moments, Brad. It's like he, this editor wants to get on the phone with you. It's like, okay, that's good. And then the editor has to sort of show it to the next guy above him. And then the head of the like company reads it or whatever they say. And then it's like, by the time you've waited another, like, four weeks then they're like great we're gonna buy your book and it's like oh good you know like (laughs) thank god i'm so happy (laughs) you know like i i was hoping this would happen but like whatever you have to wait forever and it's like that with all the steps there's almost there's very few where it's like congratulations you win kind of thing it's like well there might be a possibility that this next thing could happen and you're the guy so just hold tight and it's just like okay yeah you know yeah hurry up and wait yeah. But occasionally amazing. there's a, you know, occasionally I'll talk to somebody and the book will go out and it'll be like, you know, and 24 hours later, I'm like, what the fuck? You know, how does that happen? And I wonder in literature if it's like, you know, certain agents, the publisher, you know, the publishing houses all like sit up and pay attention or is it 
like yeah yeah i don't know oh no there was no bidding war for my book you know and it's like whatever maybe that gets me but but you know what maybe if there is or if there's like an early offer if somebody comes back does come back quickly then the agent can go to the other houses that they've submitted to and say hey we have an offer if you want in on this you know get on the stick it's uh it's been a period of demystifying the whole process for me at every level you know so yeah i'm learning as i go and it's but here you are, FSG Originals. Here I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. And it's like, um, I felt like, like I said before, it's the book that I set out to write. And, uh, you know, my editor, John, at, at FSG, we made it, I feel like we did work and we made it better. But there was no, like, I was actually surprised because he's such a nice guy. But, like, I was expecting to have to, like, battle it out a little and fight. It's different. Yeah, it's so much more civilized. Yeah. <laughs> There's still a gentleman. I mean, the publishing, yeah. there's a lot of gentlemen and gentlewomen yeah. in publishing compared to the movie business where there's some really good people, you know, it's easy to paint it with a broad brush. I mean, there's a lot of good people doing it. Oh, for sure. But there's something, I don't know. I, I go back and forth about this with LA, especially when it comes to the entertainment business. I think that it's, it breeds a kind of inhumanity, like even in good people. Yeah. Like it, it almost like. Well, it's like, there's a lot of jobs within the film world and it's like, that's the job you always wanted to do. Or like, how did you end up being this? You know, it's, it's very strange, but you also get to meet fascinating people, you know, like you get to meet like really cool people. And, um, so, you know, the give and take, the give and take. Yeah. And I just feel, but I feel like too, there's also like an insidery jaded language of like snarky, you know what else? any other business you have a contract with somebody you do your end they pay you it's like it's like even after you've done your part it's like a negotiation to get your goddamn money yeah. it's so ridiculous but <laughs> yeah. like after a while it drives my girlfriend crazy she's like they still haven't paid you or whatever for a different project and i'm just like it's coming don't worry, don't worry. you know yeah, like slowly don't but... get all you know there's no sense getting all worked up like, well that's what they talk like when you talk about like uh making movies and uh you know, a movie does really well at the box office and makes a hundred million dollars or something, you know, contractually, like, like from the outside looking in, it's easy to think like, Oh, whoever wrote that screenplay is mm. loving it. Yeah. But it's like, you know, they probably got paid a fee yeah. up front. They probably didn't get any points. Yeah. And, or uh, even if you have points, it's like the accounting, the accounting is yeah. very tricky. It's yeah. like the studio's got to get paid like 10 times before anybody so it's like, but you, to have those problems, right? Those are good. Problems. I'll take them. Like, yeah. Look, one of the stories that I kind of hang my hat on is, uh, I want to say the guys who wrote the first pirates of the Caribbean, mm. like it wasn't supposed to be a thing. And I think it, the project sort of bounced around and it wasn't until Johnny Depp was like, Oh, I want to play a pirate that the thing even got greenlit. Sure. But they had written it. And I want to say that their agents, when things were, I mean, I, I could be fucking the story up, but the, the short of it is that they negotiated a very good contract where like they even got like a percentage of like pirates of the Caribbean merchandise and like, uh-huh. and like <laughs> theme park shit. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like, yeah, yeah. If this thing becomes anything like you right. and like these guys absolutely. I'm sure they had to fight it. like tooth and nail to keep that, even though they had it in yeah. the contract. They, Disney was probably like, fuck. Yeah. Got to pay these assholes this much money. But I think they did. Or it's like, did you, um, Read that New Yorker story with Trump's ghostwriter of the art of the deal. No, no. Tony Schwartz. I think he had this deal where it's like he got half of the advance, which was like $500,000 and he got half of all royalties. And that's like, 
an insanely high feat, but he's also like, it's his cross to bear now because he yeah. gave the world Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, he helped to because that book is a big part of his mythology. And he says Donald Trump, he doesn't believe that he's actually read the book, you know? I don't either. It's insane. I, yeah. like, I wonder what the last book Donald Trump read cover to cover would be. Oh, God. I, I mean, you know, like he's just... They tw- say he doesn't read. Yeah, well, the internet. Yeah. Twitter. I mean, right. you know, so, um, you said you were from Buffalo. Yeah. I'm from, uh, I'm from a place called Lockport, New York. It's right on the Erie canal, just sort of North S- of Buffalo. Small town, suburb, a suburb of Buffalo. Yeah. Sort of suburban Buffalo. What's Buffalo like? Uh, hmm. It's a good, it's, I mean, they're good people. It's very, you're from the Midwest. It's very Midwestern yeah. and it's the Rust Belt. So it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's kind of a depressed place in a lot of ways, but also, because of that, it's allowed to have this, like, revival. And people are really... People from Buffalo will tell you, like, we're coming up. Like, things are good here. I feel like that's what's happening in, like, Pittsburgh. Yeah. I feel like Pittsburgh is a, is kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening there. And there's, like, an arts community flourishing. Yeah, there. people are proud in those places. And they want to live in cool... They want to live in good places that have the things that you should be able to have in good places. I can't speak to it because I knew I wanted to leave I can only remember always wanting to leave, you know, like I just want, I don't know what I wanted. Like my mom told me recently, she said, eh. I told her when I was eight, like I'm going South, whatever that meant. I think it was like the realization that everyone, freezing your ass yeah, everyone didn't have nine months of winter or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, but you had your sights set on like when, when oh, I can't even, I could never have imagined that I live in Los Angeles. That was not, it, it was so abstract. It was like a thing in movies or something. And it was, yeah, I never would have dreamed that I would yeah, wind up here. So strange. So, um, I don't know. There's something I've, I've sort of, I'm, I told you I spent 10 years resisting moving to LA and now I'm really happy here. So who knows? You yeah, know, I know, I know. I mean, it's like, it's not a, it's not the worst place, not the best place. Who knows where the best place is? You know what? It's fascinating too. Coming from, from, uh, Buffalo. It's like, there's this like something apocalyptic about it. It's like, I'm looking out the window now and it's beautiful. It's like the skies are blue. It's like trees are green, but like every, there's like some cosmic thing with Los Angeles, like every kind of disaster you can have. It has like, you know, even include like, you know, obviously like earthquakes and whatever, but like even like race riots, wildfires, (laughs) like floods, drought, landslide. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, um, I don't know. I'm fascinated by it. As there's a, a whole, there's a whole, there's a book that I was reading. God, what was it? But there, I mean, there really is like a lot of apocalyptic mythology, uh, like around Los Angeles. Like it makes people think of that. Yeah. Um, maybe cause it's like the edge of the country. It's the desert. The city shouldn't really even be here. Nope. <laughs> nope. Um, you know, and then there's the earthquake stuff, the wildfire stuff, but I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's, like, I've, I've always kind of joked about it as like being the city at the edge or like the city at the bottom of the hill. Like this is where people go and like, you can't get any further. Yeah. You can't and, get and, any and further. Then, and that's, I guess, unless you go to Hawaii or something, but really LA feels like the last spot maybe for people who don't know where else to go or people on their last leg or whatever it is. But it has that kind of sense. Um, at least a certain portion of the population might feed that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I'm sort of like weirdly taking notes with no intention of anything to write. Just like how fascinated I am by this as a place, you know? Yeah. Um, and just like how you can't keep track of time here. It's so like, 
it's October now. Does it feel like October? No, it's just a little, it's a little brisk. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We have the doors closed in here. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Um, but you know, and then growing up in Buffalo, like, uh, obviously like not a a huge center for film or no, I'll tell you this though. And this is sort of, I include this in the book and this is true. Lockport where I'm from. Um, that's where Joyce Carol Oates is from. She's from Lockport. And you think anyone told me that when I was like growing up there? No, (laughs) I was like, go basically 23 years old before somebody bothered to tell me that like Joyce Carol. And it's like, Joyce Carol Oates is a heroic figure on any level, you know? And so it's just like, talk about productive. Yeah. Right. So that in a nutshell is just like sort of helps define the place, not good or bad. Like the people are great, but there's only like 10 jobs that they understand as jobs. You know, like, yeah, what did your folks do? Like they're both up? teachers. Okay. My dad teaches, uh, like high school economics and world history. And my mom taught, um, nursing at a community college and then became like an associate dean or something. And those, my, are, jo- those are jobs that people in Buffalo are, can understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like doctor, lawyer, accountant, nurse, those are jobs, you know, saying that you're a screenwriter and you no movies come and you live basically in squalor. Like that's not a job, you right. know? And it's like, they're not wrong. No, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. I mean, it's like, but there are certain places like that's the thing about living in LA is that you can say that and nobody bats an eye. Right. But then you go to Buffalo and it's like, yeah, but what do you do? Yeah. You have to have a job. But, um, yeah, as far as like the luck factor and all of that and like, you know, sort of paying your dues and sort of sticking with it long enough so that you can get a little momentum going. Like there's a version of me that was, that still is sort of all in. And I was like, well, it'll be an interesting story even if I do it for my whole life and it never happens sort of thing. But that's a sad story too. And so (laughs) at that point you're battling delusion. Like, do you have delusions of grandeur? But you, you know, if you get enough positive feedback and you understand like you deserve to be there, like that's a big hurdle to cross, you know? Right. Right. So what, like, where did you go to college? I went to school at American university in Washington, DC. And that was like total, I don't know why, you know, I, I mean, I just sort of like, I narrowed down a couple of schools and that was the one that was furthest away from home. (laughs) And I was like, actually that was like, there was something incredibly serendipitous about that because I can imagine Washington DC would be a pretty boring place to spend five years in any given stretch. But this was an insane time to be there. You know, I got there, the disputed Bush Gore election happened. Nine 11 happened a year later, the anthrax, uh, attacks, the beltway sniper, the two wars, like all this stuff was happening and it was an insane place to be. So I can't divorce that from my experience of being there because it was so sure. formative. It gave me like a sort of like a worldview, but also like it sort of informed my creative imagination too. And it sort of, it, 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 it took this, it shot me out of this, the, the middle-class boredom of the Clinton years where I was like, well, you go to college, you play, you know, you get a job, you know, you check off all these boxes and it like removed all the boxes. You know, there was like, nobody was pretending there were any, you know, jobs or anything. It was sort of like, sort of, cut me loose. Things to just got like, bleak. Yeah. But, it, but it also had like, it sounds like it had like a liberating effect. Yeah, for sure. And this is the thing I be careful. How I say this, but like, um, 
that you wouldn't ever like nine eleven is a horrific thing, right? And it's mostly New York, but DC is this sort of second city of nine eleven, right? And it's like there were attacks, and it went into its own physical and psychic lockdown, and it was a very strange place to be, but also it was very alive in a way that it, that's the weird thing to say is like all of that stuff is like seared into my imagination because it was not an uninteresting place to be. It was very, and George Bush was just like this sort of like sort of scary (laughs) buffoon, you know, but like there was no check on how far it could go. It didn't. I I remember those years, like really, uh, it's a, it was a trauma for me. Mm -hmm. Like the whole ramp up to the Iraq war and not any, and no one really calling it out. It seemed insane to me. Insane. Yeah. And I remember feeling very panicky and disillusioned. Well, the other thing is, um, the idea of protest, right? I'm too young. I, whatever. I wasn't too young, but what a little too young to participate in the occupy thing. But I remember those like months ahead of the Iraq war and these big marches on the white house and on the mall and things like that, you know, probably tens of thousands of people that didn't change anything. Well, no, you know? like when you look at Congress, Nobody who cared. There was like one congresswoman from California, and I'm, I'm uh, unfortunately blanking on her name, but you know, it was like the big, whether, whether it was the Patriot Act or the Iraq right. War re- Resolution, she, it was one of those, those big pieces of like war-related legislation, mm-hmm. and she was the one person to be like, hey, you know, we should yeah. slow the fuck down. Yeah. Uh, one. Yeah. That's how, that's how loud the drum beats were and how in lockstep oh, and all, the all those calls people were. Of, um patriotism like those big big buzzy words like patriotism and things like that that were just being being wielded at people who and like the orwellian like yeah. the patriot act i mean like that yeah i don't know it's it's crazy it's a dark time um <laughs> yeah but so thank god we're now on the precipice yeah, of right. a trump presidency well i said this <laughs> i said this the other night when i had a book reading here in la uh Part of the reason I wanted to write the book was so that we remember we lived through this thing with George Bush, you know, and I want to remember just like how out of his depth he was and just like how destructive he was on so many levels. And if Donald Trump is elected president, it's going to pale in comparison and we're going to forget that George Bush's years in the... I feel like like so many people already forget how shitty things were. Oh my God. Like when he left office, the country was on fire. Like yeah. the economy was like just completely plummeting in a free fall. We were locked up in two wars. Um, like everything was a disaster. He walked out literally like house is on fire. Yeah, See yeah. Ya. Here's the keys. So, you know, like that kind of thing. You and, forget like, remember like the, the journalist throwing his shoe at him and things, crazy <laughs> stuff. Like he almost, he was, it was just like, it was a crazy time. You know, what about now though? Because I see in his post-presidency, like sometimes, you know, I'll look at him and I'll be like, he knows. Oh, yeah. And I feel like he, when he switched from his first term to his second term, uh, I feel like somewhere around that time, you know, he started to figure out that Cheney was sort of duping him or had duped him Mm. and that Rumsfeld, too. You know, I think he sort of figured out that he was getting gamed a little bit. And I think maybe he started to wake up a little bit then. I like to believe, you know, and then I see him now in his post presidency and he's been awfully quiet. He I uh, hiding think out. He's been in hiding kind he, of. He looks, the guy must have some demons. <laughs> uh, well, I mean he's painting himself in the shower and you know, these, these I mean that's paintings. his greatest post presidential uh, contribution <laughs> is these paintings. I want more. Release the paintings. I really actually think they're kind of 
fast. I like them. I do too. I mean, he has a psychological thing in it, but it's also like, I look at him and I see how much he's aged and there's something like, sometimes I think like, oh man, he's carrying a really heavy burden. And I'm capable of feeling compassion for him. If he realizes like I fucked it up mm-hmm. like that, uh, like he, maybe he, maybe he, like, I want to believe he really wanted to do it right. And then he went in and he just fucked it up. Yeah. But then there's also like, there's a part of me that's like, dude, he set us back a hundred years <laughs> minimum, you know, it's like, and also like, don't give him too much credit. Yeah. Like he might just be like, uh, you know, he might believe he did it right. Yeah. You know, right. like, who he, knows? Who fucking who knows? knows? It's crazy. All right, dude. Well, um, it's really good to meet you. Congrats yeah. on all of your successes, uh, both in screenwriting and with this new novel. And, uh, I wish you well on all that you have going on. Cool. Thanks, Brad. All right, guys, there you go. That's Mike Roberts. His debut novel, Cannibals in Love, is available now from FSG Originals. Go get it. Go check out as well the movie Goat. It just premiered. It's in theaters now. It will be available on demand imminently. It's called Goat. Mike Roberts. You can find him online at freemikeroberts.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at MKRBRTS. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the Other People app. You know how that works. Get the Other People with Brad Listy app on your device. It's free. It's the best way to listen. Sign up for premium. Get access to all the episodes, 75 cents a month. Support the show. You know how that works, right? You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. If you want access to everything, sign up for premium right there within the app. 75 cents a month. Uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com email me. I don't know why I'm uh, finishing my sentences with that kind of strange, uh, intonation, but I, uh, am very excited to have uh, locked in another episode. I think this is what 435. Is that where we are? 435, 436. I can't even remember. I'm also very excited, uh, to report to you that uh the election's almost over (laughs) i'm almost done talking about this for those of you who follow me on twitter i'm almost done tweeting about it i know it's been a lot i need to feel like i have some sort of uh empowerment i need to feel like i can make a difference i may be deluding myself but that's okay it's making me feel better i hope you'll allow me that this is my microphone Here's a question that haunts me. If Donald Trump loses, let's say he loses and let's say he loses badly. It's not like he's going to be ashamed and he's going to go quietly into the night. He's going to start his own television network. He's going to try to become a media mogul in that way or the next Roger Ailes, or he's going to work with Roger Ailes in order to create a new network to compete with Fox. It's going to be the ultra, ultra right wing network. It's going to be even more insane than Fox. It's going to double down on the insanity of Fox. It's going to become a thing in America. Donald Trump's going to be on the airwaves. He's also going to be on uh, all the news networks because he, he's going to deliver ratings with his insanity. He's going to be on CNN. He's not going to leave us. He's going to haunt us like a fucking ghost. Please remember that Catherine Mansfield died at age 35 and that Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1855 said, quote, America is now given over to a damned mob of scribbling women, end quote. That's all for now. Thanks again to Mike Roberts. Get the book, the novel, the debut novel, Cannibals in Love, out there now from FSG Originals. Go see the movie Goat in theaters now. Written by Mike Roberts. And uh, thanks to you guys. I appreciate you listening. I'll be back next week. Does that sound good? Okay. Okay.